Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. A couple of weeks ago in the high school class, um, after the retreat, I decided to talk through the material on singleness and dating one, one more time. Uh, for the second week after the retreat and instead of doing our usual week in the Gospel of John. And after class, I got a response I don't usually get after 10 years of being in this class. You know who you are, guys. But they said, um, wow, that was relevant. And we want to hear more of that. So... um, it was kind of like when the disciples said to Jesus, oh, now you're speaking plainly. Now you've got something to say to us. So, but um, I hope in future weeks, and we talked about it this morning even, to, uh, to emphasize that the gospel is relevant. The gospel of John even is relevant to, to daily life. And they agreed with me this morning. And I've set myself a, a similar task this morning to convince you that what a guy in... 2000 BC was glad about is somehow helpful to us this season. Here's the whole text. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. This is verse 56 of John 8. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And if you've got your Bibles open to that chapter, you've already realized probably that this is that chapter where Abraham uh, figures into the self-identification of Jesus. He, He goes on to say in verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. And so he identifies himself as the eternal God. And it's a magnificent passage, but that's not what we're gonna talk about. We're gonna talk about verse 56 this morning. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So let's ask God's blessing on this portion of our hour. Our Father, we've, we've already um, received from you, the, the, in a sense, the word made visible. We've uh, received the elements of the bread and the wine. We have uh, meditated on our sin and on Christ's remedy, his death and his burial, his broken body and his shed blood for us. And now we take up the word written and spoken. And so we ask that you would likewise bless that and bless to our hearts the content of your word and also um, as you've forgiven our sins <coughs> prior to this, that you would forgive and, and uh, take away any sin in the way that we handle it. Let the word be pure to us and let it be right and let there be no error spoken. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm gonna try to organize this around four basic words in the the verse. Abraham, number one, saw, two, my day, which is three, and then being glad, he was glad. That is the fourth point. And so I hope this is easy to follow. And it's a very small verse. It's a fragment of a verse, really. But let's talk about Abraham. Um, if you're new to the Bible, you might not 
regard Abraham as high as in your estimation as you might ought to. But if you're starting to be familiar with the sweep of the story, you can't escape Abraham. He, he is literally everywhere in the Bible. He, um, not only does he occupy chapters 12 through 25 of Genesis, which is if you're like me and grew up with Bible, a Bible around you, you probably tried to read the Bible several times and got bogged down somewhere at the, towards the end of Exodus. It's, the story is pretty exciting up until then, and then he starts giving all these crazy laws, and you, you get lost and stop. But if you're like me, you read the story of Abraham several times, and he's, he's all through, he's, he's half of the book of Genesis. And, but what you might not know is that he, he's referred to 42 more times after the book of Genesis, just in the Old Testament alone, and 73, by my computer count, 73 times in the New Testament. So that gives you a clue. He's not just a man in history, sort of a, you know, a Samson or something that was just interesting, an interesting story from the Old Testament. He's a, he is literally a theological topic. And um, um, if you're new to the Bible, this is not in my notes, and it's always a, it's always a scary thing when you depart from your notes, but if you're new to the Bible, you could do a lot worse if you want to get familiar with it, then just get your Bible app, go ahead and search all the occurrences of Abraham and literally read all those passages. You would probably get a mini theology, a biblical theology we call it, of just the sweep of God's revelation and where does Abraham fit. That would be an excellent thing for you to do. But he's the father of all the Israelites, obviously. And, but more than that, he's the person that all the promises were given to. If you're not part of the covenant with Abraham, you're literally not in covenant with God himself. That He's that important. So let's just remember some of these promises. In, in Genesis 12, and I'm not going to even pretend that you should turn to all these passages, but in Genesis 12, God says, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And some people I've read this week said that that's actually an imperative, and God is saying, be a blessing, Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's literally how we got into this right there. Here's another one from... Um, Turn the page. Genesis 17. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. That's also a key word. It's offspring equals seed, if, depending on which Bible you're using. Your seed after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And lastly, in, in 22, Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord called him, to Abraham a second time from heaven 
and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring or your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And that's just three of them. By my count, there were nine separate times when God repeated parts of his promises and his covenants to Abraham. So when you think of Abraham, you just think, think the word promise. And it's the promise of God, not the promise that a fallible human being has made. Um, some other key words to remember that, that when you hear the word Abraham are land and seed and blessing, especially blessing. So the promise, just to sum up, it, is that in Abraham and his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And that's really the story of the New Testament. And so the New Testament ties in uh, our lives directly with Abraham's promises. And I'll just give you two examples. In Galatians, we have this. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And in Romans, we have something like this. This is why it depends on faith. Salvation depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Ha, ah, there's a word you've heard. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God who, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. So that's a very quick overview of Abraham, where he fits into the, the revelation of the Bible, where he fits into our lives. Um, let's think about the word saw. He saw my day. Abraham saw my day. <clears throat> Did Abraham see the day of the Messiah? And if so, how? Because to start with, in Matthew 13 and Luke chapter 10, Jesus sounds like he contradicts himself a little bit. He says this in Matthew, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then he said in Luke, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets... And kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So did Abraham see the day of the Messiah? Well, I'm going to dodge that one. I mean, I think there's not a contradiction really. Jesus, I think, in those two passages was using the word see to mean see clearly or to see all the details. The disciples were in the details. They were there. They were experiencing it. But I think here in John 8:56, he's just saying, Abraham understood the prophecies. He understood the promises. And he put his trust in them as best he could. He knew what was being told to him. He probably knew a lot more than we think he knew. Um, we were talking in SDG the other night about how much did an Old Testament saint put his faith in? Um, did he 
somehow or the other believe in the Jesus Christ that was coming, or did he put his faith in he or she, uh, put his faith in a uh, um, more generic promise of the Bible? And it's not, a, it's not an easy thing to answer. Uh, I know what some of the traditional answers are that come from different points of view. Um, think about what First Peter says on this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours in the past, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, New Covenant believers, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So even the angels weren't completely um, on board with just all the details before this happened. It says, though, that the Spirit told them that there would be the sufferings of Christ, right, and the glories to come after that, it just, he just didn't tell them a person or a time. But it was revealed to them that their ministry of prophecy was to serve the future generations of believers when this would be happening. It's got to have been really weird to be a prophet of the Lord, don't you think? Um, you, you, you say something, thus says, says the Lord, and may even write it down, and, and, you, and then you read over it and say, what? <laughs> what did I just predict? I'm not sure I understand this. I mean, that's exactly what it says they did. I, I made careful search and inquiry into the things that I just said by the Holy Spirit. So they're not, they're not they don't have a complete systematic theology of, of the coming of the Son of God, but they saw that there was going to be a day. They saw that there was a day of the Messiah, that somehow or the other these prophecies and these... Uh, promises were going to come true. There was going to be a seed. And Paul says, um, seed is singular, you know, and it's one of those words that can go either way, just like offspring. Uh, the, um, the seed uh, will possess the land, but then there's, there's this concept of seed as being one person. And so they, they had something. They had a lot but the main thing that carries us along here is Jesus says that Abraham saw his day. We don't have to justify what Jesus says. He says it, and we can just believe it. Abraham saw my day and was glad. And so one last New Testament passage that sort of ties in with this is Hebrews 11. All those saints, you all remember Hebrews 11? The, the, the roll call of saints. It says they all died in faith not having received the things promised, but, ha here's the word, having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles in the earth. So, and it goes on to say that they desired a heavenly city and not just an earthly one. So they, they saw a lot. They could even see past the land of Israel and say, hey, it's actually a heavenly city we're talking about that the earthly land is a, is a symbol of. So Abraham saw We'll leave it at that. Um, he saw the day of the Messiah coming. And so what is this day? This is number three. My day. He saw my day. And uh, Jesus, by the way, wasn't really bashful here. He, 
he's talking to um, antagonistic people. He's talking to some segment of the Jews uh, at this point, Pharisees or whatever. And no matter how glorious all these promises are, and they know, he knows them and they know them, he just takes a very edgy um, stance with them and says, my, he just wraps the whole thing up and calls it my day. That is, that is just about as provocative as anything he could have said. He, he's, he was not any uh, stranger to doing that. You know, I am the father. I am the father or one or something like that. And he's about to say, I am the I am of the Old Testament. But here, that this is just about as, as, as provocative. He, he says, everything you've heard about Abraham, everything you've heard about from the prophets, that's all my day. And so no wonder they were very unhappy with him, or at least unbelievers would be very unhappy with him. But he's standing in the, he doesn't see anything wrong with this. He's standing at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles on a dusty city at the edge of the Roman Empire without any special trappings around him and no real evidence that the day of the Lord has come. And he just says, I'm here. It's my day. The day of the Messiah has begun, and it's right in front of you. And all that Old Testament day of the Lord stuff, it has started. So the question is, if Abraham saw it, can we see it? I love that song we sang last week. Thank you, Cody. Uh, We sang Christ the True and Better Adam. I think that's the name of the song by Matt Boswell and Matt Papa. Um, it's, it shows us the right way to read the Old Testament. It shows us the Abraham way to read the Old Testament. Christ the true and better Adam, Christ the true and better Moses, etc. I think it, it feels like they based that song on a very famous sermon by Tim Keller where, where that's, that Keller makes an entire list of, of how Christ is the true and better everything out of the Old Testament. But, he, but think about it. He's the, he's the Adam who does what Adam didn't do. He reverses the curse. He's the better Moses because he leads his people in exodus out of sin, out of slavery. But unlike Moses, he, he's a perfect uh, leader. He's perfectly delivering us. He doesn't give us a temporary deliverance. He's the true and better David because he is the king from David's line, but he's an eternal king. He's not a failing king. He's not failing like Solomon and uh, all the ones that came afterwards. He's the true and better, uh, I lost uh, what the, whatever the last verse of that song was, but uh, he's, he's, the, in, he's the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He's the fulfillment of the temple and the tabernacle. He's in his own person, he's, he embodies these things and brings them to fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of the Levitical priesthood. He's the fulfillment, really, of the nation itself, the nation of Israel. He's the, he's the son. God calls Israel his son, but he has a, he has a final son in, in Jesus. And he's that seed that blesses all the nations of the earth that was promised to Abraham. This was the day that Abraham saw. Everything sad was going to come untrue. And so Abraham was glad, number four. Abraham rejoiced and was glad. So what do these words mean? I studied these words. I did my word studies. Guess what? They mean be glad. 
Um, the first one is, is more, is, is more um, forceful. It says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the rejoiced one is more forceful. It has a, a flavor of jumping for joy. Um, it's sort of, you could use the word jubilation. And the second one is the more normal be glad kind of word. It's not quite as rowdy as the first one. But they overlap in the New Testament. There's not a huge distinction. There's not some theological distinction between two kinds of being glad. Mainly Abraham just rejoiced, right? And that's a problem. I had a problem with this, this whole section because we don't talk this way. I'm sorry. Do y'all? I mean, Bible language is great, but when's the last time you told somebody you rejoiced? We just don't really talk that way. We, about the closest we get is to ex exhort one another to have joy in some situation or something. Or we talk about how joy is more important than happiness and the distinction between those. But really and truly, most of us don't talk about rejoicing and jumping for joy. Um, so I was pretty stumped uh, as to how to explain this and Leanne Womack helped me. I mean, I like this. She's, she said, um, give the heavens above more than a passing glance. And if you get a chance to sit it out or dance, you guys know what comes next. I hope you dance. I love that line. And I can't think of a, a better secular way of getting, getting some gravity here. The, if you get a chance to sit it out or dance, dance. Do something. Be rejoicing. Be jubilant. I, I think that's what make Advent, makes Advent special, or Christmas and Advent, is that they, it wakes up a new kind of joy within us that we are missing some parts of the year. Um, I know that there's some kids out here that are jubilant about the wrong, maybe, you know, they've, they've got the idea, but the main thing they're jubilant about is what's under the tree, and their anticipation is not quite the advent anticipation. But a lot of you that have grown up that way have transferred and realized that that's a picture, right? You've transferred that, that, that anticipation and that joy to the real advent, the thing that's really the gift of Christmas. You've decided that you can, you can get past presents and you really are, in fact, anticipating the coming of Christ. And that's, that's, where, that's all Abraham's doing here. He's, he's saying there's a joy that's coming. I am glad in it. It's, um, it's a day, there's a day when the seed is gonna bless the nations of the earth. There's a day when we're gonna inherit the promises and I'm joyful. So, Abraham saw my day and was glad. Let's wrap this up. Let's wrap this up and put a bow on it. See what I did? Um, first of all, as, as we sort of wrap this up, let's not leave without a little bit of a caution. Let's remember that Jesus wasn't saying this to encourage believers. This, is not a, uh, this was not a pithy uh, plaque-worthy statement that he was trying to, to really um, put in your life. He was actually rebuking people, right, when he said this. He, this was a, in the midst of a 
hard discussion, and the very point of the discussion was that they weren't glad. They did see what Abraham was talking about, a lot of it, but they were not believing it. They weren't glad. In fact, they regarded themselves as Abraham's children, but they had none of the heart, none of the reality of it. And the, so the first thing we need to ask ourselves, let's not presume, okay, to be Abraham's children. We have the same problem as they have. We, have, we grow up in church, a lot of us. I bless the Lord for any of you who've, who were converted as adults. This is not who I'm talking to. But if you've grown up in the church, or you're here because of just outward appearances, and you've, you've just assumed that you were the children of Abraham because you're, you're here with your parents, don't do that. I mean, that was the very first message of John the Baptist, right? He said, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He said, God can make Abraham's children out of stones. That is not what, what the reality is. Have the reality in you and not just the name. Don't be that part. There's a visible people of God that are not filling their lamps, right? They're not waiting for the bridegroom, but they're called by the name. They're part of the visible people of God, and they are cast out at the end. Really belong to the people of the Lord. Really turn your life over to Jesus and abandon your own lordship and, and be glad. That's going to be a major part of your saving faith. Be glad. Repent of those dead works and trust in Jesus. So to the believers, um, ways to be glad, whatever, you know. It's, very, it's, it's, it's traditional for a sermon to try to end with something you're supposed to do. And th but this is really not a, a doing verse, is it? It's a statement of fact. It's an indicative. It's, it's, a, jo it's a joyful statement of fact. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. That's not an instruction, is it? But it might be an example. Um, in Howard Hendricks's famous, what is it, nine questions of Bible application, the very first one is, is there an example I can follow? And this is surely something we can look at. Can I be glad like Abraham? Okay, now all you guys with the relevance questions, um, is, this, is it relevant to be joyful and glad? And I think most of us adults would say, it sure is. Because I can remember times when everything around me was going well, but I had a secret heartache that no one knew about, and it just robbed me of everything that was happening around me. If you, you can have all the outward circumstances and not the joy, right? And then nothing is right. Nothing is right. On the other hand, the circumstances could be horrible, but if you have an inward joy that is sustaining you, you have everything that you need, don't you? It's very practical to be joyful. So I'll just say three things to do, and then I'm gonna back off and say that I'm not telling you to do anything, okay? So let's see how that goes. First, the first here's the three that I thought of. First, know that joy is allowed and commanded in scripture. It is, a, it, is a, it is an awesome and beautiful duty of Christians. This is a key insight of Jonathan Edwards, C.S. Lewis, John Piper, take your pick. If you don't like one of those, pick one of the others. 
all of them realized that joy was key to the universe. That the universe was created because God was joyful and wanted to share his joy with his creations. He was overflowing with joy. He glorifies himself by us being joyful. You can see in Isaiah and Revelation those holy angels just being joyful. They're doing nothing but being joyful. And they don't have any sin to weigh them down. They're just joyful. I'm near the Lord. I'm joyful. But we are commanded to seek out joy as well. Um, Here's a few things. Psalm 20 says, May we shout for joy over your salvation and the name of our gods and in the name of our God set up our banners. Isn't that great? Set up our banners. Here's uh, here's Psalm um, 32. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And Isaiah 12 says, Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. So joy is allowed. It is commanded. It is a duty. It is wonderful. Second thing, set your heart on the right things, the right targets. The right thing here is the day of Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ. This is an Advent sermon. So set your heart on the comings of Christ. There are two. Um, Abraham knew about a maximum of two, but he might have only known about it as one coming. We don't know. But historically, Advent, as a Christian season, has looked to both comings. You're, You're anticipating the first coming of Christ on Christmas Day, but Advent has always looked to both comings of Christ as, a, as an anticipation. So you can put yourself in the shoes of an old covenant believer and, and wait for the coming, the first humble, beautiful coming of Christ as a baby. I love these three guys, uh, Simeon, Anna, and, and Joseph of Arimathea. Here's what it says about them. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna, it says, was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And Joseph, it says, was looking for the kingdom of God. So just like Abraham, these Old Testament saints were looking for the consummation. They were looking for that coming. And we can do that too. But we have also the knowledge of the second coming. We can look to the uh, second coming. He will judge the nations. He will rescue us. At that time, he will vindicate all you, his saints. He, he will show in front of the very universe with, them, uh, with you on display that you are righteous. He will clothe you in white robes and he will declare openly to everybody that he loves you and has been glorifying himself through you. And he'll remove all sin and all tears and all death and he'll give you new bodies and he'll invite you to his, sit down at his marriage feast where you'll be presented as his bride. That is the second advent. Abraham had a day to look forward to, but we have two days. We can look backwards to the beautiful story of Christmas. We can look forwards to the beautiful story of the amazing second coming. So set your heart on the right thing. That was number two. The third one was sing about it. Sing it to yourself and to each other. Um, Psalm 5, let all who take refuge in you rejoice, let them ever sing for joy. 
Psalm 40, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Now, this is a season that comes with its own songbook. It's so wonderful. I'm not saying Christmas is the most important time of the year, but I don't believe there's any other time of the year that has inspired so many great songs. You can sing God's praises all this season by just opening up any book of traditional Christmas songs. They're packed with good theology. Almost all of the good ones will somehow tie the birth in with the death, you know. Or if the birth is in the first verse, that death will be in the last verse. They'll fix it. All you have to do if you, if you, uh, if you don't have a, a book of Christian song, Christmas songs is grab a hymnal and open up to that section and just sing those songs. There, there they are. But the most important part is don't just find them on Spotify and play them. Actually sing them. This is what I'm going to say. Go sing them. What is it about singing? I don't know. We just now... Um, ate bread and drank wine because God knows that tangible things turn our hearts. And there's something about singing um, and playing music. It just changes you. you if you turn your body uh, towards singing, it can turn your spirit as well. So, so sing the songs. Sing to each other. And um, if you're blessed to live with other people, sing with them. And if you're blessed to have children in your house, sing to them and, and teach them to sing with you. So there's three things, I don't know, to do. And now I'm just, like I said, I'm just going to back off here for a minute and say, don't, I'm not telling you to do anything. I just did, but I'm contradicting myself, okay? But here's, why I'm, here's what I'm saying. If you go away from today and say, oh, what was the sermon about? Well, Pastor Mark said we need to be more joyful. Huh. That, then I have failed, okay? I just have failed. Um, it's not about doing. It's about being glad. Abraham saw my day and was glad. So don't turn it into another list of things to do. Just, just tell. All we really want to do is tell each other joyful stories and if possible sing them. So nobody has to tell you to be joyful when something is joyful, do they? When you're, when you're at a birth, or when your marriage proposal has just been accepted, or something like that, do, they, do you then have to have an instruction right afterwards that says, be joyful? No. You're joyful because the story happened, the thing happened. So I'm really, I'm really not trying to say, do something. I'm saying, see something. Just see something and be glad in it. If singing about it helps you, by all means, turn your face in the right direction. Remove obstacles. Do something that helps you remember it. But don't be confusing those with the gospel. Those are just uh, techniques. The actual good news is that Jesus loves you. Jesus saves. Jesus died and rose again for you. Jesus reigns for you and says you will reign with him. That's all I'm asking. Be joyful about that. Just be glad. Be Abraham. Okay? I'll leave you with this. Nehemiah 8 is spoken on a different feast day, not Christmas, but it surely, um, it surely goes with it. Go your way. 
eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you and we rejoice in you and we want your name to be great. Not our techniques, not our works, not our deeds, not our faithfulness. We just rejoice in the faithfulness of Jesus. We rejoice that he fulfilled his promises and he will continue to fulfill his promises. And so grant that we would have the joy in the right things. Grant that our life would be full of joy. Grant that we would jump for joy and be jubilant. Thank you for these things. In in the name of Jesus, amen.